Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Oh my God, we're recording again. Uh, welcome back to Dark Poutine. I am Mike Brown, and I see Matthew Stockton on my screen. How are you today, Matthew? I am good. You are good? Yes. Just good? Just good. Oh, interesting. <laughs> well, hopefully things improve as we talk about ghosts and spooky things like we're going to do on this show. Yes, it always cheers me up. Oh, that. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Patine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor its parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar, it's time to scarf down some dark poutine. You are responsible for obtaining and maintaining at your own cost all equipment needed to listen to dark poutine. Dark poutine can be addictive. Side effects may include, but not be limited to, pausing and questioning the system, elevated heart rate, pondering humanity, odd looks from colleagues as you laugh out loud at work, family members not into true crime worrying about you. Positive side effects may include some perspectives and opinions that you disagree with, as well as some wokeness and empathy. If you don't think dark poutine is for you, consult your doctor immediately. In this, the second episode of our five-part Spooktober series, we dive into three ghostly tales from coast to coast, or, to coin a phrase, ghost to ghost. First, we're off to northern New Brunswick to learn about the ghostly fireship of Bay Chaleur, said to sail the waters of the bay intermittently, terrifying mariners and residents alike. Next, we head to Wallaceburg, Ontario, where in the 1830s, violent poltergeist activity known as the Baldoon Mystery occurred. Last... We come back west to B.C., where in a small museum in Quinell resides Mandy, the haunted doll. This is Dark Poutine, episode 288, Spooktober, More Canadian Ghost Stories. So I love a nautical tale, especially when there's a haunted ship involved. And oh yeah, this one is a blaze. It's the fire ship of Bay Chaleur. And this mysterious apparition resembles a burning tall ship, and there have been sightings of the burning ship for centuries. Numerous theories have been proposed to explain the phenomenon, ranging from atmospheric electrical displays to flammable gas emissions. Oh, dear. Flammable. You are nautical in your heart, aren't you? I am. You can take the boy out of Nova Scotia, but you can't take the Nova Scotia out of the boy. That's something that we always joke about. And you even move from one coast to the other coast. Well, yeah, I just ran away until I hit water and stopped. Then you moved into Abbotsford where there's like not much water. I don't live in Abbotsford. I live in Langley. <laughs> oh, my. Anyway... Chaleur Bay is a large and scenic body of water located between the northern coast of New Brunswick and the southern coast of Quebec's Gaspé Peninsula. The bay opens to the Gulf of St. Lawrence in the east. Chaleur Bay is surrounded by mountains and cliffs on the Gaspé side and more moderate hills with significant forests and farmland on the New Brunswick side. Key communities around the bay include Campbellton and Bathurst in New Brunswick and Carleton-sur-Mer in Quebec. The region's original inhabitants were the Mi'kmaq and the Iroquois-speaking St. Lawrence Iroquois. They utilized the bay for fishing, hunting, and trade long before European contact. The name Chaleur, meaning warmth in French, was given to the bay by French explorer Jacques Cartier 
1534 due to the warm waters he encountered when he arrived there. Over time, European settlers, particularly the Acadians and the British, began colonizing areas around the bay. The bay became an important trade route for fishing and logging. Maybe it was pee. Maybe he's maybe he's swimming because I can't imagine that water's actually warm. Have you been in this water? Well, I know that Atlantic is not warm, so there there might be something going on with the way the water is in that particular bay that makes it a little warm. But I think he was swimming with his shipmates, and somebody peed, and he thought it was just warm water. That's probably exactly what it was. <laughs> Some stories of the ship claim its origins predate Cartier's exploration of the region. According to a folktale, reportedly told by an unnamed Norwegian sailor present at the time, in the early 1500s, the waters of Chaleur Bay witnessed the treacherous ventures of Gaspar Corte Real, a Portuguese navigator. Arriving near Gaspé, close to Cape Rossier, where 34 years later Jacques Cartier would stake a claim, Corte Real deceitfully invited indigenous chiefs aboard his ship under the guise of friendship. Once on the ship, he plied them with alcohol, causing them to lose consciousness. To their horror, they awoke not in their homeland, but in the middle of the ocean, bound for Portugal. Their cruel fate was to be sold into slavery. Gaspar's audacious successes emboldened him to return to Chaleur Bay in 1501, anchoring near the game-rich Heron Island. Here, he again interacted with the indigenous population seemingly on amiable terms. However, they had neither forgotten nor forgiven his betrayal of the previous year. Seizing an opportune dark night, they retaliated in force. They overtook Corte Riel's ship, killing his crew. Gaspar's fate was particularly harrowing, and he was bound and placed on Heron Rock, left to the merciless rise of the tide. The once-feared navigator met a slow and agonizing death, overwhelmed by the encroaching waters. That doesn't sound like fun. No, it wouldn't be. Yeah. Um, if, this, if this story was true... If it's true, because cause yeah. we're not sure if it's hyperbole or not, so... If it is, was he a total moron? Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go roofie and kidnap people and sell them into slavery and then yep. go back again. Right. <laughs> right? Yeah, not not the wisest thing to do. No. Especially when there's a force of people who are probably quite upset with you by this time. Oh, yes. He underestimated them, I think. But the tale didn't end there. The following summer, 1502, Miguel Corte Real, Gaspar's concerned brother, arrived at Bay Chaleur searching for his sibling. As Miguel's crew approached Gaspar's eerily silent caravel moored near Heron Island, a fleet of canoes surrounded them, filled with angry indigenous men. Agile and determined to defend their land from the European invaders, they boarded Miguel's ship, catching the crew off guard and causing significant casualties. The remaining crew members, including Miguel, barricaded themselves, readying for a final stand. As the battle ensued, a catastrophic fire broke out. Engulfed in flames, the ship darted across the bay before vanishing into the abyss. The sole indigenous survivor is apparently who recounted this haunting tale. As Gaspar Corte Real actually did go missing, and his brother went missing while searching for him, and their true fates are unknown, this is an intriguing explanation. From that fateful day, a spectral fire ship has been rumored to haunt Schiller Bay, particularly preceding storms, leading locals to quip, quote, the fire ship has shown itself, for sure we're going to have a squall. This terrifying phenomenon reportedly prompted the indigenous people to abandon Heron Island, seeking safety elsewhere. Tales of the ghostly ship intertwined with tragedy and betrayal have been shared across generations, with some witnesses even claiming sightings. Some, including a fisherman from the south coast, believed this ethereal ship might be an electrical anomaly. In contrast, others like the old Norwegian islander remain steadfast in their belief in the haunted legend. So if this story were true, I'd probably suggest that the indigenous people abandoned the island, probably not because of the myth of the ship, but the realities of defending themselves in a small island from these pirates and, and uh, what, what are we going to call them, uh, slave traders. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, you know, you're on a small island and all these big European ships are coming in. I'd probably move a little bit inland as well. 
Yeah, it's it's pretty wise. Uh, and that might have been their real thinking. It, Euro- Europeans were worse than the ghosts. Yeah. There are tales connecting the fire ship to Marquis de Malos, a French frigate sunk by the British in 1760. In the mid-18th century, during a period of heightened hostilities between the French and British in the North Atlantic region, naval encounters were frequent. The British naval fleet sought to diminish the French naval power targeting their vessels, especially those that were strategic or valuable. In 1760, the Marquis de Malos was embroiled in such a confrontation. Having gathered intelligence on the frigate's movements, the British strategically cornered it near the Restigouche River. After a fierce exchange, the British emerged victorious, driving the Marquis de Malos into the river, where it subsequently sunk. Local folklore suggests that the souls aboard the Marquis de Malos could not find peace after this calamitous event. Some believe the fire ship, which occasionally appears on the bay, is the spectral incarnation of Marquis de Malos, forever doomed to reenact its last journey. The flaming appearance of the ship is thought to symbolize the fiery combat and tragic end of the French vessel. Moreover, local legends occasionally refer to salvaged remnants of the sunken frigate. Whispered tales speak of relics from the Marquis de Malos that have been discovered and now held in nearby locales, further binding the memory of the ship to the area. For instance, some accounts suggest that remnants of the Marquis rest in a monastery garden at the Indian Reserve at Cross Point, Quebec. An article on an archive page at the City of Bathurst website indicates another, more recent explanation for the fire ship. In the early 1900s, colossal ships from distant lands often entered Chiller Bay. Without guidance systems like lighthouses or buoys, they depended on expert pilots to guide them close to shore, primarily to trade with locals, especially the vulnerable indigenous tribes. These traders would often deceive the tribes, exchanging their valuable furs for worthless goods, intoxicating them, and then robbing them of their furs. Among these traders, Captain Craig stood out as the most notorious. Fluent in the local dialect, he visited frequently. On a particular day, his ship was seen in the bay. Using a flag signal, he beckoned a pilot to guide his ship to an indigenous village. After their trading was done, a signal from the ship prompted the pilot to guide them out. However, amidst their journey, the pilot discovered two kidnapped indigenous girls aboard intended to be abused and discarded by the captain and his mate. Having saved the girls and returned them to shore, they warned him of impending doom. Ignoring this, he resumed navigating the ship, which shortly afterward crashed onto the rocks, killing everyone except the captain, his mate, and the pilot. Both the captain and his mate drowned before reaching shore. The pilot survived. Stories of the ship's presence have sparked intense discussions among the residents. While some write it off as pure fantasy, others, counting trustworthy locals among them, are sure they've witnessed a ship that challenges logical explanation. A notable daytime sighting occurred on a sweltering July day when many beachgoers at Eugle Beach in Bathurst observed the apparition for over a half an hour. Several theories attempt to explain the phenomena. Some scientists suggest that it's St. Elmo's fire. Typically seen during stormy weather, St. Elmo's fire is a weather phenomenon in which a visible blue or violet glow appears near the tips of pointed objects, such as a ship's mast, an aircraft wing, or church steeples. This occurs when the difference in electrical potential between the ground, or sea, and the atmosphere results in high voltage that ionizes the air molecules, causing them to glow. That's fascinating. The phenomenon is named after St. Erasmus of Formia, also known as St. Elmo, the patron saint of sailors. Sailors took the appearance of St. Elmo's fire as a good omen, believing it was a sign of protection from the saint. It's important to note that St. Elmo's fire is not the same as lightning, although both are electrical phenomena related to thunderstorms. Others believe that it might be flammable gas emissions or some form of phosphorescent marine life, though the latter is laughed off, especially since there have been sightings of the ship even when the bay was frozen. I now have that song by Canadian composer David Foster in my head. (laughs) Yeah, it was a really crappy movie in the 80s, too. But a better song. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, Ali Sheedy was in that, wasn't she? And Andy McDowell, all the... The Brat Pack, yeah. All the 80s. So what I find interesting here is um, why these ghost ship stories exist. Mm -hmm. Sort of of what's the psychological or social reason behind them. Right. Right? Yep. And, uh, you know, we're just talking now about um, St. Elmo's Fire and and Mm -hmm. perhaps there are stories that were created to explain natural phenomena that people didn't have the science of yet to understand, right? right? Um, but if you think about this, right, there's, you have a bunch of Europeans that are far away from home, right, in kind of an unknown territory um, with a dangerous job, right? Mm-hmm. So it, maybe it was storytelling, like, for warnings, like warnings of, of doom or danger, what could go wrong when you're traveling, the perils of sea, right? Yeah. Um, or the idea of, of, hey, if you don't do it right, the, the, the idea of trapped souls. You know, a lot of these ghost ships often have, the stories have trapped souls on them. Mm-hmm. The dangers of the ocean um, are there. Right. Or unfulfilled desires, right? Ghost ships of, you know, these, these people were setting out for fame and fortune, right? Um, mm. and, and it could be, you know, s- s- sort of, it's almost kind of is like the ship that the, the ship that keeps appearing. It's like, it's wandering eternally now. Right. Yeah. Because yep. it, because it didn't get to where it was going. Right? Yes, exactly. And you, you might feel that way when you're traveling the world back then, right? Just endlessly wandering. But that's a good take on that, I think. Yeah. And, and then, of course, it's a metaphor of isolation as well, isn't it? Mm-hmm. This, this feeling of being lost or disconnected from the society that you know. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. Yeah, the sea is a lonely mistress. <laughs> Our next tale takes us to Baldoon, a settlement near Wallaceburg, Ontario, where in 1829, one of Canada's most notorious poltergeist incidents happened over the course of three years. To refresh, the word poltergeist originates from the German language. It is a combination of two words, poltern, which means to make noise or to rumble, and geist, which means, of course, ghost or spirit. Therefore, poltergeist can be directly translated as noisy ghost or rumbling spirit. A poltergeist is a supernatural entity believed to be responsible for physical disturbances such as loud noises, objects being moved or destroyed, and even mysterious manifestations. Often associated with particular individuals or locations, these restless spirits are wrapped in an enigmatic aura leaving a trail of inexplicable occurrences in their wake. So what's the difference between a poltergeist and a ghost? You got the question to me early enough that I could do some research before the show, and the idea is that ghosts are believed to be spirits of the deceased who haven't transitioned from the realm of the living for one reason or another. That's a very broad explanation. The ghost hasn't transitioned. He still identifies as human. Right. <laughs> exactly, essentially. They can manifest in various forms such as full bodies, transparent entities, or foggy mists. Poltergeists, on the other hand, are thought to be energy forms that a living person unknowingly controls. So while poltergeists make their presence known by moving or influencing physical objects, ghosts just typically appear. Ghosts can be seen, but poltergeists are often not at all. Some theories suggest that ghosts are passive souls of the deceased, where poltergeists are aggressive souls of departed individuals. I don't know if that's actually true. I mean, I don't know if any of this is actually true. It's just, (laughs) it's interesting. Uh, Ghosts are often linked to specific locations, so this is the answer to your question, especially places where significant events like murders occurred. So if something, there's this theory called the stone tape theory, whereas what happened, the trauma of an event is recorded into its environment. Okay. It's like negative energy. Well, it could be, or it could be very positive energy, too. Okay. Any event that was very energetic and emotional could be recorded into the environment. Poltergeists aren't tied to a specific location, but are associated with specific objects, sometimes, or individuals, more likely. However, some theories propose that poltergeists can be connected to multiple objects and people. Poltergeists 
to to answer your question in a short way are connected to usually to somebody okay whereas ghosts can be associated to a place more so okay so back to our story the unsettling events near wallaceburg in 1829 occurred at john mcdonald's residence and gained prominence through newspaper articles written by his son neil t mcdonald these reports were later compiled into a narrative named The Baldoon Mystery in the early 20th century. In 1986, a local historian, Alan Mann, released a revised edition of the tale, which included 26 first-hand testimonies collected by Neil, historical annotations, and relevant photographs detailing the paranormal occurrences. The Anishinaabe, Ojibwe people, primarily occupied the area before the arrival of the European settlers. The proximity to waterways made it an ideal location for these indigenous communities, offering ample opportunities for fishing, transportation, and trade. The Great Lakes region, in which Baldoon is located, has a rich history of indigenous habitation and culture, with numerous tribes and nations having established communities and trade networks in the region over millennia. Baldoon was part of the land settlement project initiated by Lord Selkirk, a Scottish philanthropist, in the early 19th century. Lord Selkirk was concerned about the living conditions of his fellow Scots and sought to improve and sought to provide them with better opportunities in the New World. In 1803, he purchased a large tract of land near the junction of the Sydenham and Chenail Ecarte Rivers, which is present-day Wallaceburg. Scottish Highlanders were among the first to settle in Baldoon in 1804. Lord Selkirk's efforts were to provide a home for displaced Scots who had suffered from the Highland clearances, a series of evictions in Scotland where tenant farmers were forced off the lands they had worked for generations. That sounds like not a fun thing. No. Southwest Ontario is chock full of Scottish influence. Why, well, you would know that because that's where you're from. Yeah, to the point where my nephew's name is Angus, right? Like, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you think about it, like, Southwest Ontario has, has places like Perth, Glencoe, you know, Inverhuron, Glencairn, Ayr, where my great-grandfather was from originally in Scotland. Mm -hmm. The accents of Southwestern Ontario have a lot of influence from our Scottish roots, right? Like, even... I think the, you know, the, the famous sort of Canadians don't say about, they say about. Right. I think that actually is... It's Scottish. It's Scottish and it's primarily um, a lot of, how do I put this? A lot of accents in international sort of television and stuff like that is from Ontario. So the Ontario accent is often a, one that a lot of people know around the world, right? Because it's just size size of the population. The settlers in the area faced numerous challenges, including issues related to land quality, flooding, and disputes with Lord Selkirk over the terms of their settlement. The land was marshy, making it difficult to cultivate, and the settlers were unfamiliar with the environment of their new homeland. John MacDonald, a Scottish immigrant, was at the heart of this mystery. After settling in the Baldoon region, on Lot A of the Fourth Concession, he constructed his home on a plot of land that was steeped in local lore. The chief and medicine man of nearby Walpole Island argued that MacDonald had desecrated a poplar grove which was believed to be inhabited by Mamagwesiwug, or fairies. According to him, this act was what most likely led to a series of eerie and unexplained disturbances on MacDonald's property, but there were other explanations that we'll learn about later. On October 28, 1829, an unexpected incident occurred in the MacDonald barn. As the MacDonald women and a few neighborhood girls were busy with straw, a pole from the ceiling, which was structured using poles to form an open-ended loft, suddenly plunged, narrowly missing them. Though initially unfazed, the women continued their task, only to be startled again when another pole descended minutes later. Puzzled, they inspected the ceiling but found no obvious cause. Immersed in conversation and work, they were jolted once more when a third pole came crashing down. Frightened, they hastily retreated to the safety of their home, thinking the barn was going to fall down. The peculiar events didn't stop there. Invisible hands seemed to hurl stones at the farmhouse, shattering every window. Those who inspected the projectiles noticed they were wet and polished, reminiscent of stones from the nearby river. Oddly, the roof dripped water even when the skies were clear. 
On one occasion, what felt like an earthquake rocked only the McDonald's residence. No other homes in the area felt the quaking. Everyday household items like pots and pans were jolted off surfaces without explanation. Neil T. McDonald wrote in his book, The dishes of water would rise of their own accord from the table. The tongs and shovel bang against each other on the hearth. The chairs and tables fall over with a loud crash. And even that sober domestic creature, the kettle on the hearth, would toss off its lid, tip over on one side, and suddenly, as if seized by unseen hands, dash itself in a paroxysm of fury on the floor. An Indian knife, with a blade ten inches long, was violently dashed against the window frame, and its blade stuck fast in the casement. The poltergeist activity intensified after Reverend McDorman, a Methodist preacher from the area, tried to rid the property of spirits by way of exorcism. Livestock that had been perfectly healthy perished mysteriously overnight. Horses found lifeless in their stalls, an ox dead while still yoked to its plow, and chickens and pigs inexplicably succumbing. Nightly, the family was disturbed by the echoing sound of unseen men marching in their kitchen. Robert Baker, a Michigan educator interested in witchcraft, attempted to banish the spirits, placing a horseshoe above the farmhouse's entrance and invoking divine intervention. His endeavors failed and led to his arrest and conviction for practicing witchcraft. Well, that's what you get for helping. Despite being sentenced to a year's imprisonment, Baker's appeal reached the lieutenant governor who pardoned him on the 6th of May, 1830. Yet the sinister happenings persisted and grew more aggressive. Cradles rocked without a push, causing the baby to shriek with fear. Guns discharged spontaneously. The eerie happenings became well known, and many locals recounted their own eerie experiences on McDonald's premises. The story hit the newspapers of the day. The Toronto Globe reported one account. I went with my father to see what was going on at Baldoon, for I was very young at the time. We saw a pot rise from a hearth and chase a dog outside and all around the yard. It could not get away from the pot, for it would hit the dog, and he would yell and howl with all his might. I saw an old-fashioned butcher knife pass through a crowd of fifty men and strike into the wall the whole length of a ten-inch blade. This happened in 1830. Most witnesses consistently recounted a phenomenon where lead balls, possibly from muskets or fishing nets, darted unpredictably around the properties. A portion even noted their efforts to trace a potential hidden human perpetrator. L.A. McDougald shared an episode where marked lead balls would inexplicably return after being discarded in a river, shattering the windows again. Other accounts highlighted mysterious sounds resembling footsteps without visible sources. Some also witnessed visual anomalies where objects would morph into figures, including an ominous black dog, which multiple people confirmed seeing during significant events. You see, I thought the black dog was just mine. No, I've seen the black dog. A lot of people have seen it. And I was kind of hoping that you would notice that. When I saw it in my research, I thought that has to go in because Matthew has had that experience himself. Matthew's. It's not just my... I was being selfish thinking it was just my black dog. Yeah. <laughs> it's all about me, Mike. It is all about you. <laughs> Mysterious small fires began igniting spontaneously throughout the dwelling, becoming increasingly challenging to extinguish. William Fleury, a neighbor, recounted that he witnessed the house spontaneously combust in ten different areas simultaneously. Solomon Partarsung, an indigenous traveler, described his attempt to douse the recurrent fires. He recounted how a tiny ember could instantly ignite a flame even on damp surfaces. Eventually, the entire house was consumed by flames. Neil T. MacDonald continued in his writings. At last, one day the crisis came. Worn out with anxious watching, the unhappy man was becoming desperate when flames burst from a dozen sources in his dwelling. No time to save his household goods. The fire raised his habitation to the ground. Not even his coat was saved, and he saw the home to which he had so lately led his happy bride, buoyant with future hope, strew to the winds and ashes. The baffling incidents continued even after the McDonald's relocated to Donald McDonald's residence, John's father, who lived next door. Most testimonials were recorded many years post-events, with few giving accurate event timelines. 
Margaret Johnson stated that the McDonald's shifted residents multiple times, but the spooky occurrences relentlessly pursued them. At Reverend McDormand's suggestion, a well-known occultist, Dr. John Troyer, was consulted. More after this Supernatural Circumstances promo and a quick break. Hey Dark Poutine listeners, Mike here. Are you ready to dive deep into the mysteries of the supernatural? Join me and award-winning paranormal researcher Morgan Knudsen as we dissect chilling phenomena on supernatural circumstances. From spine-tingling hauntings to creepy cryptids and other paranormal subjects, we'll be your guides on this extraordinary journey. We're in Season 2 right now, so there are plenty of episodes for you to catch up on. Buckle up and explore the unknown with us and numerous expert guests. Download Supernatural Circumstances wherever you podcast. All right, and we are back. Matthew, what are your thoughts so far? I I think with your uh, description of what a poltergeist is, it helped me understand why these people are being followed. Right. Uh, Because I thought um, poltergeist, I thought it's sort of the opposite. I thought poltergeists um, are in a place, but they actually follow people. Right. Well, there's no consensus about what poltergeists are, and some parapsychologists view them as supernatural entities causing disturbances, while others attribute the activity to energies linked to living individuals or locations. So uh, Morgan and I did a story in our very first episode of Supernatural Circumstances about a thing called the Philip Experiment that took place in Canada, where a bunch of people created this entity out of nothing that began to affect the environment around them, including moving a table around, knocking sounds, and all that kind of stuff. It's it's really, really fascinating. I could send you some videos on it, but so perhaps poltergeists are created by the people who are there. It's not necessarily a separate thing at all. Right. Dr. Troyer was a reputed witch doctor from the vicinity of Long Point, Ontario. Troyer, born on the 3rd of February 1753 in Brothers Valley, Somerset County, Pennsylvania, was a farmer, businessman, medical practitioner, and exorcist. He was the eldest son of David Michael Troyer and Magdalena Mast, and in 1879 he migrated from Pennsylvania to Long Point on Lake Erie, establishing a farm known as Troyer's Flats. By 1797 he had set up a grist mill in a smithy and constructed a sloop a boat. Despite lacking formal medical training, he was renowned in the region for his herbal remedies and bloodletting practices. However, Troyer's most significant legacy stems from the folklore surrounding him, and he was believed to, quote, have the knowledge of witches, and was known to use a divining rod to locate water and precious metals. Local tales suggest that he and his son might have discovered a treasure, if not for a phantom guardian a large black dog that thwarted their efforts. There's the dog again. Another story involves a mischievous neighbor, Mrs. Jenny Elizabeth McMichael, who would tease Troyer with witch-like antics. So this is no word of a lie. Okay. My great-grandfather came to our house with the divining rod to help us locate where the clay water pipes were in our backyard. Okay, yep. Because we were doing an extension. And he literally had this stick, and it would... He'd walk and it would go down and then he he took a metal rod and went push it and went cling cling cling. Yeah, it's there. And then he did the next one and then the next one. I saw this with my very own eyes. That's really cool. Yeah. I love that stuff. And there are many, many stories of that kind of thing happening that are really hard to explain. I always like to think maybe there's more to this world than meets the eye. Well, it could also be you know, people who have arthritis or pain sometimes they they <laughs> they know when the weather's changing i do i know my in my shoulder and my right? hands so if you're holding a stick right and you're actually looking for water maybe there's some sort of interaction with the body could be you know it could be scientific i i think of it as a scientific thing with divining rods that we just haven't figured out yet at Baldoon, dr troyer faced what many considered the ultimate challenge of his expertise in white magic 
Troyer and his 15-year-old daughter Dinah and the Reverend McDormand traveled to the McDonald's farm. During a nighttime stop by the Thames River, they claimed witches and malevolent spirits besieged them, their haunting cries preventing any rest. At McDonald's the next day, Dr. Troyer's daughter used her father's renowned scrying stone, or moonstone, at long point, seeking its clairvoyant powers and placing it under his hat. Not sure why she had to do that. After a lengthy trance, she astounded McDonald with her detailed knowledge of his situation. She instructed him to craft a silver bullet and target a particular goose with unusual black feathers on its wing that had recently appeared on his land. Following her guidance, MacDonald shot the goose in the wing. The bird vanished into the reeds only for the old woman from the long, low house, the one mentioned before, whom MacDonald had previously clashed with, to emerge with a fresh injury on her arm. After this incident, the MacDonald family's troubles ended. So maybe this story sort of grew somehow, but in reality... What happened back then was there's this troublesome neighbor that he gave a warning shot to in her arm, and then and he, and he was like, "Stop it!" And she's like, "Okay, yeah, maybe, <laughs> <laughs> yeah." So then it becomes this. This whole story happens around it. <laughs> this whole story with a goose and all that kind of stuff. I love folklore so much because it's like the telephone game. Here's the story. Here's what happened. But over the years, we as humans who love to tell stories embellish and add things and it, they become this craziness. While Dr. Troyer's unique character continued to draw attention and tales of peculiar events, his involvement in resolving the Baldoon mystery remains the most notable. Equally intriguing are tales from his final days. It's said he impressively shot a hawk from a barn's peak shortly before his passing. Rumors suggest that grave robbers attempted to steal magical items from his burial site only to be chased away by a large white bird. Beyond the folklore surrounding him, it's essential to remember that John Troyer was not just a legendary figure in the Long Point Marsh region, but also the pioneer who established the first garden and orchard in Norfolk County and owned its inaugural medicine chest. Numerous individuals provided ambiguous interpretations for the mysterious occurrences, suggesting that a malevolent entity tormented the MacDonald family. Some explanations were problematic and downright racist, pointing fingers at the local indigenous people. Some modern interpretations propose that the strange happenings in MacDonald's residence were due to a young orphan girl in his household who is prone to poltergeist-induced seizures. Again, it could be somebody creating some sort of weird energy around them. Uh, you know, what I'm happy about is this story doesn't roll out the old trope that the movie Poltergeist did of the, quote, Indian burial ground. Yeah. Right, um, which I think was kind of the downside of that film for me because it, you know, this perpetuation of early people is sort of mysterious and dangerous and voodoo and all that sort of stuff just doesn't, right. ha doesn't help. <laughs> Our last tale takes us to Quinell, British Columbia, where the local museum holds an antique doll named Mandy that came into the museum's collection in 1991. The person who brought it claimed it was haunted. Named originally as Miranda, it was quickly nicknamed Mandy. It's easier to say. The doll was believed to have been made in the 1920s either in England or Germany. Her eerily lifelike appearance, especially her sinister smile, was striking. Mandy's porcelain face was marred by a distinct crack, which made one of her eyes appear misaligned. Some believe these cracks suggest she might have been hit or abused. Her clothed body was tattered, and she had an overall weary appearance. Her detailed craftsmanship, especially realistic blue eyes, often made people feel she was watching them. The doll's donor, Lisa Sorensen, remembered how she had inherited the doll from her grandmother. She felt the doll had a terrifying appearance and was associated with a history of domestic violence that Sorensen's grandmother had endured. Lisa herself had experienced paranormal activity before getting the doll. She and her husband often heard a baby's cries from their basement, but never found any source. On one occasion, a loud bang resulted in a window in their house being opened and their infant daughter being shifted in her crib by unseen hands. The couple decided to move shortly after, 
and the decision was soon made to be rid of the doll. According to some who study parapsychology, there's a concept that certain items can retain or be imbued with energy, particularly from traumatic or emotionally charged events. These items, be they dolls, pieces of furniture, jewelry, or even buildings, are believed to store energies or emotions from specific incidents or their previous owners. When the energy is of a negative nature, such as that stemming from a violent death, severe trauma, or profound sadness, the item is said to be haunted or cursed. This retained energy might manifest in various ways. Some people claim to witness apparitions, hear unexplained sounds, or experience drastic temperature changes around such items. Others feel overwhelming emotions when near, like sadness or fear. Haunted dolls, for instance, are often said to move independently, produce sounds, or even project specific feelings onto those nearby. The mechanisms, or reasons why these objects retain such energy, are not clearly understood within parapsychology. However, many theories suggest it's tied to the original owner's strong emotional imprint or the events associated with the items. You might be familiar with the story of Annabelle. She's another notorious haunted doll that gained infamy through her association with the renowned paranormal investigators Ed and Lorraine Warren and Annabelle's portrayal in the Conjuring movie universe. The story of Annabelle traces back to the 1970s when a mother bought an antique Raggedy Ann doll from a hobby store as a birthday gift for her daughter Donna, who was then a nursing student living with a roommate named Angie. Soon after receiving the doll, strange occurrences began to transpire. The doll seemed to move independently, often found in entirely different rooms or peculiar positions. Mysterious messages such as, help me, started appearing on pieces of parchment paper around their apartment, even though neither Donna nor Angie owned any such paper. Even more unsettling, the doll occasionally appeared to leak a blood-like substance. Could you imagine if the Annabelle movie used a Raggedy Ann doll? That'd be so not scary. Oh, look, it's Raggedy Ann, <laughs> which is, yeah. So, yeah, it is definitely a Hollywoodized telling. I think you could make it scary with a Raggedy Ann doll. You could. Uh, my aunt had a Raggedy Ann and Andy doll, and they weren't scary at all. My sister had those. Okay. Those are old school dolls, aren't they? They really are. So desperate for answers, the two women consulted a medium who conducted a seance. The medium communicated that the spirit of a young girl named Annabelle Higgins had tragically died on the property where Donna and Angie's apartment was located, and she'd taken residence inside the doll. The spirit was fond of the two women and merely wanted their company. However, after an alleged attack on a friend of Donna's, the situation escalated, prompting them to seek help from Ed and Lorraine Warren. The Warrens concluded that the spirit attached to the doll was not that of a young girl. Instead, they believed it to be a malevolent entity intending to possess Donna. The Warrens took Annabelle to their occult museum in Monroe, Connecticut to prevent any further harm. The doll was placed in a secure glass box with a warning sign advising visitors not to touch it. This intriguing tale became the foundation for the cinematic portrayal of Annabelle. While the doll in the movies looks quite different from the real-life Raggedy Ann, the chilling essence of the story remains. However, as with many tales of the supernatural, there are skeptics, and some believe that the story surrounding Annabelle might be exaggerated or entirely fictional. The truth, as always, is left to individual interpretation and belief. But what about Mandy and Quinnell? In a 1999 Calgary Herald article about Mandy the Doll by Chris Dawson, Cookie Castle, the assistant coordinator at the Quinnell Museum, said that upon her arrival at the museum, protocol required placing Mandy inside a plastic wrap for two days to check for any insect infestation. This only heightened the doll's eerie demeanor, causing unease among the staff. Once out of quarantine, a photography session was scheduled to catalog her. The photographer and her assisting boyfriend felt a sense of discomfort during the whole session. Other museum staff reported feeling uneasy around the new acquisition. After the brief photo shoot, museum workers left the negatives to dry in a locked room. To their shock, the room was vandalized the next morning. Different small items lay scattered all over the floor of the room. Cookie's thoughts turned immediately to the doll. All I could think of was, she's had a temper tantrum, Castle recalled. 
For reasons unknown, Mandy seemed to resist being photographed. Many who tried experienced equipment malfunctions. Even the local newspaper's photographer, Ross Mitchell, had an unsettling encounter. After taking her photo, he heard unexplained footsteps in a supposedly empty building, and his equipment malfunctioned. What I love is, and yet, here's a photo of the doll. Right, I've, yeah, and I'm showing <laughs> you, know? you photos. <laughs> and, and, and it's like, ever, ever since everyone has a phone on their iPhone, suddenly the doll is, uh, can be photographed very easily. They're not saying it can't be photographed. They're saying that she doesn't seem to like it. So to correct you... You don't like being photographed either. I don't like being photographed. I don't. No. I really so don't. Maybe you're... Are you Annabelle? You mean Mandy. Sorry, Mandy, Annabelle. Same thing. Yeah, I guess not the same thing. <laughs> anyway. Scary dolls. Are you a scary doll? I am a scary doll. <laughs> Over the years, Mandy has been at the center of several such incidents, creating quite a stir in British Columbia. Small items vanished without a trace, and the staff's lunches sometimes disappeared from the fridge and either later appeared in random drawers or was gone altogether. If your lunch is missing altogether, I probably ate it. Well, somebody, had, when I worked at that particular telecom, was eating people's lunches, and we even set things up. So, you know, put a strange uh, type of pop and a really odd bag, but, you know, it disappeared, but we were unable to find it. We never discovered who the culprit, the lunch-eating culprit was. If you'd poisoned it, you would have. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah, maybe, yeah. Oh, look, the person died. <laughs> well, why is John choking? Ah, he's, he's, he's a sandwich bandit. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Mandy's uncanny appearance drew comparisons to Chucky from the horror film Child's Play. All went quiet for a few years after her original donation, but in the late 1990s, Mandy saw a surge in recognition. Mandy, Ruth Stubbs, her previous caretaker at the museum, and Lisa Sorensen, Mandy's donor, were guests on the Montel Williams show. Mandy was so famous by this time that on her arrival in New York for the show, U.S. customs officials asking Stubbs what she had to declare had heard of her alleged haunted cargo. On the show, psychic Sylvia Brown analyzed Mandy's energy. Brown reportedly sensed that the doll was once owned by twins who suffered from polio. The psychic believed that the mother's deep sorrow embedded itself in the doll after the twins' death from the disease. According to the Quinell Caribou Observer in August 2022, Mandy is still attracting the attention of those interested in the paranormal. The Paranormal Road Trippers, a group of investigators exploring paranormal activities across British Columbia, Washington, and Oregon, have taken particular interest in Mandy. Mike M., a member of the group and self-proclaimed history enthusiast, first investigated the doll in 2015. During one of their investigations, a team member reportedly fell into a trance after staring at Mandy and was feeling unwell. Only Mike and his girlfriend, Sandra, were present on a more recent visit. During their investigation, which was recorded on YouTube, something seemed to touch Sandra's hair. Despite using various paranormal detection equipment, the only evidence they captured was the mysterious movement of Sandra's hair. Now, before you say anything, Matthew, because I see that look on your face, they used a whole bunch of things that some people use for paranormal supernatural detection and did not find anything. The only thing they discovered on this trip was the movement of Sandra's hair. Interesting. Matthew, you are probably one of the most skeptical people that I know on the planet. But that's okay. I mean, I am skeptical, but interested as well. I have a, a healthy skepticism where I'm open to things happening that are maybe outside of our understanding. I don't think, as human beings, we understand everything there is to understand. Is that something that you believe? Do you think we know everything that there is to be known? We're not even close. Some of these things could be that stuff. I think some, st some of the stuff is about quantum theory and things like that. Totally. 100%. 100%. But we don't fully understand that yet, either. We probably never will. No. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, is it a wave or is it a particle? Well, it's a particle when we're looking at it, but when, when we turn away, it's a wave. Why is that? Hmm. <laughs> anyway. Is that like when 
I'm waving at you, and then when you turn your back to me, I give you the finger. <laughs> Particles and waves. <laughs> oh, my God. I don't do that. Seriously, though, if you're interested in what the paranormal road trippers do and looking more into their video about Mandy, I have put a YouTube link in the show notes, and I've linked to their Instagram account as well. They seem like pretty cool people. Despite the eerie tales about Mandy, she's become a popular attraction in Quinell and lots of people have visited. The city's museum saw a surge in attendance, attributing much to Mandy's infamy. While not everyone believes in the haunted tales, almost everyone in Quinell has heard of Mandy, making her an iconic figure in the city's lore. And that's it for Dark Poutine, episode 288, Spooktober. More Canadian ghost stories. That's right, it's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at 1-877-327-5786 or 1-877-DARK-PTN. We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. Let's get to our first voicemail. Hi, um, this is really odd for me, but I love your podcast. I've been listening to it for about five years now. So I want to say, since you guys started, um, I didn't know you guys had this voicemail. Um, yeah, I highly, highly recommend you guys doing a story about the Tranquil, Tranquil um, Sanatorium in Kamloops, BC. It is a great, um, interesting story. And yeah, um, yeah, okay. Yeah, thank you. Happy early Halloween. <laughs> wow. Uh, so uh, probably from the interior BC some, somewhere. Didn't say her name, but uh, but I'm I'm interested in that story as well. There's some really weird stuff that went on at that particular sanatorium. So it's on my list of things to do. What do you think that? Per- well, let's let's even name her. Do you want to name her? Sure. Yeah. Well, what's her name first up? She didn't give us a name, so. Judy. Okay, so Judy, and she lives somewhere in the interior. I'll probably think around Kamloops somewhere. What does she do for a living? What does Judy do for a living, Matthew? She's a poltergeist therapist. Does she provide therapy to the poltergeist or to the person who is attached to the poltergeist? To the poltergeist, because they really need to figure out how to manage their anger. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a sad situation, those darn poltergeists (laughs) and their angry things. Uh, Well, that's cool. Well, thank you for your call. And like I say, that one's on our list. Let's move on to our next voicemail. Hi, um, I have nothing left to say. Um, I just got your book, and I'm really sorry. I'm a poor person. And I got it from the library, and I was reading it, and oh my god, it's so good. So I would like to thank you for that, and I you have some really good writing. Have a great night, bye. Oh, wow. Well, thank you very much. My first book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, available at your local library if you can't afford to, to purchase one. And there's nothing nothing wrong with getting a book from a library. No, no. I, I don't have any trouble with somebody reading my book, regardless of how they do it. Uh, I'm not going to say I approve of it being taken from the internet, but I know it's there. So anyway, uh, if you want to read my book, please do, because, hey, maybe it's, uh, you'll enjoy it, or you can tell somebody else about it. But thank you. Um, so what does that, again, somebody else who didn't give their name, and uh, yeah, very interesting. They said they had nothing nasty to say, which they didn't. And don't feel bad. Don't Please don't feel bad about not being able to buy it, really. No, you're just chuffed that people are reading your book. Right. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. Um, where does this person live, Matt? Well, let's name her. Bethany. Bethany. Okay, and where does Bethany live? Somewhere with a library, presumably. I'm actually looking out my window right now towards the Vancouver Public Library. So I think Bethany lives um, on uh, Nelson Street here in Vancouver. Oh, okay. Well, 
Well, there you go. Yeah. And what does Bethany do here in Vancouver, Matthew? Poltergeist realtor. Okay. So does she sell homes to poltergeists or does she sell homes that are particularly known for poltergeist activity? For people who want a little bit of spice in their house. Sure. So, so they want the adventure of having a, a poltergeisted home. So oh, uh, Okay. Yeah, so she, she sells those. And, um, you know, she has a hard time, though, because there's not a lot in the high-rise condos downtown. So, sure. They're too so new, she, maybe. So she, she does some on, you know, West Vancouver and North Vancouver. Yeah, yeah North Van's got some older houses. New West is actually probably the place with the best... Uh, potential for older, more haunted things. Uh, because or Shaughnessy. Shaughnessy, yeah, sure. We know lots has happened there. We've done stories about that place, so. All righty. Well, thank you, Bethany, for your call. Uh, let's listen to our next voicemail. Oh, hey there. It's, uh, it's me, the devil. I haven't called in a while. Just thought I'd call to say hello and let you know that it was really nice to listen to your most recent episode about the Penske witch trials. You know, it was... Penske. You were right. You were totally right about, uh, about them. They were just a bunch of Catholics. They weren't even witches or pagans or anything like that. And I mean, take it from me, I know a pagan when I see one, and I know a Catholic when I see one. Anyways, they were just a bunch of Catholics caught up in the mass hysteria. So I'm, I'm glad you didn't blame it on me. Thank you very much for taking my side. Uh, you two both have a very special space here in hell, uh, you know, when you make it here. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, you know, I have to say that a couple of them did end up in hell, but that was for completely different reasons that I'd prefer to keep private. You know, the legal team down here has been giving me shit lately, so I've got to remember to be more respectful about people's privacy. Anywho, love you guys. Give my love to Steve. Gotta go Satan away. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Lucifuge Rofacal, for your call. Uh, we know what that person does and where they're from. <laughs> <laughs> so we don't have to do any of that kind of stuff because uh, he's in hell. And he is he does devilish things. He's doing his thing. Yeah. But he loves Steve. Interesting. Yes. Maybe there is redemption for Satan. Steve is awesome. Yeah. Well, Steve is awesome. Uh, Matthew needs a fix of uh, nicotine, so I'll talk for a minute while he, <laughs> he chooses gum. <laughs> okay. Anyway, um, let's move on to our next voicemail. <laughs> Hello, this is Matt from Brunswick, Maine. I just wanted to say hi and share that I really enjoyed your episode about the 1984 National Assembly shooting in Quebec City. I had heard that there was some sort of shooting there in the 80s, but that's it. So I was totally blown away by the amazing story of the Sergeant of Arms talking the gunmen down and saving who knows how many people. Talk about being placed at the right place at the right time. The story hit home to me a little because in the early 2000s, I spent some time working at our state legislature, which at the time didn't really have much of a secure check-in process with the things that you'd expect today, like metal detectors, etc. I was very lucky that in my few years of working there and on some various political cam campaigns and having no harm come to me during that time, nobody came after me with a gun or anything like that. Um, but I'm in a completely different line of work today, um, but I still like to visit legislative buildings because I'm a, I'm a nerd, and I've done so um, to a few in, in the U.S. and Canada, including Quebec's National Assembly, which is a, a really nice building. If you're in Quebec City, you should check it out. On a lighter note, I do want to share that in college, I did take a Canadian politics class, and I got the only acceptable grade one could get doing that. And an A. Haha. Anyway, I'm too nice to tell you guys to shit in your hat, so I'll say stick your coffee crisp in your double double and stir it A to Z. <laughs> nice. Have a great day, boys. Thank you, Matt. Yeah, Good name. Another Matt. Um, and so, what does Matt do now? He said that he was sort of in security in the legislative buildings there in Maine, and he didn't have a Maine accent, which was disappointing to me, really. But. Uh, what does Matt do there in Maine, Matthew? Well, he 
his job is actually global. So he he goes to find poltergeists in national assemblies and parliament buildings okay. to ch- try to clear them out. But unfortunately, the politicians put so much bad juju into those buildings right. that pol- poltergeists are always coming back. Right. Which, you know, that just makes sense. That just makes a lot of sense to me. That's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at one 327 5786 or one 327 We'd love to hear from you, even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. Moving on, it is time for a Patreon and Donut Money donors. And first up, we have... Prairie Girl from Carmangay, Alberta, and her real name is Karen. I'm not going to say her last name because maybe she doesn't want that. But from Carmangay, Ontario, or Carmangay, Alberta, and what does Karen, or sorry, what does Prairie Girl do there in Alberta, Matthew? She's the har- harbor master <laughs> in Alberta. <laughs> Yeah, Prairie Girl's a harbor master. Oh dear! So she's not uh, very busy then. No, because <laughs> I, I can't see any real need for a harbor master in uh, in Alberta. Yeah, uh, but you know, she, she it, it's needed. Okay, somewhat. Okay, so she's you know, so Ma- she's there. Maybe someone will email and correct me about uh, the requirements of harbor masters or, or need thereof in Alberta. But oh boy. Anyway, so thank you, Prairie Girl. Much appreciated. Next up, we have Brenda Kumar. We don't know where Brenda's from or what she does, so we need both, Matthew. Okay, so Brenda is, I don't know if she's one of the Kumars at number 42, if you've ever seen that show. No. It's a great comedy show. Is it British? Yeah, so she's from 42 Somewhere Street. Okay. I, I'm going to say she, she's, she's from the UK. Right. Okay. Yeah. And uh, what does she do there, Matthew? Let me guess. It's something to do with poltergeist. No. Oh, okay. She is an archaeologist and historian. Well, there you go. Well, that's mm-hmm. good. Um, does she have one specific area of study? Ghost ships. Ghost ships. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, well... I like ghost ships too, so maybe Brenda and I can have a conversation about that. I'm I'm super curious. Ghost ships are fun. They are really fun. So next we have Nicole, and Nicole, whose last name is Madden, I'm just going to out her. She's from Calgary, Alberta. Calgary, ah. Calgary, which I've been to many times, Calgary. Um, what does Nicole do there in Calgary, Matthew? She is a marine surveyor. What? In Calgary? In Calgary? Yeah. <laughs> I'm going with the theme. Does she have to tra- does she have to travel for work or No, I'm a th- I'm on a theme on the great waterways of Alberta today. <laughs> oh dear. Well, you know, wow, the great yeah, the Bow River which is sometimes quite dry, but uh but yeah, interesting. And the huge oceans and bodies of lakes that take place in Alberta. Yeah. Oh, I mean, there are lakes. Fair enough. There are lakes. However, uh, there are no oceans. Unless I am way off, I don't think there's an ocean in, in Alberta. I really don't. But, you know, I guess everybody needs to have something to do. She must be bored as sin, but, you know, whatever. It is what it is. Um... And as far as Donut Money donors, we don't have any this week, but that's cool. Thank you for our patrons and for our to our Donut Money donors past and present. We love you guys, and you're all good eggs. You know, there is actually kind of a distinct lack of lakes in, in Alberta compared to the other provinces. Mm-hmm. I mean, they have, um, of course, the Slave Lake, right? Right, which is massive. Which is which is big, but if you like look on a map and you just pop on over to Saskatchewan and Manitoba, you start getting lakes aplenty. Well, Manitoba is known for its lakes, so yeah, it's it's mostly lake, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, mostly lake and uh, apparently lots of mosquitoes. Yeah, and then Ontario have all the Great Lakes, of course. 
And where I grew up, we have fun names for lakes. Lake Mushamush and Mushamush. Maliga Lake and Fancy Lake because it's fancy. Fancy? <laughs> fancy. Anyway, there's lots of lakes in Nova Scotia, but they're they're not anything like the lakes you grew up near. No. Thanks to all our patrons and donut money donors past and present for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of darkpoutine.com, please check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening. And tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. And that's it for this episode of Dark Poutine. So until next time, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Goodbye. Bye, folks.